Welcome to the Garden Path Podcast, life lessons and conversations from the garden. Hi, I'm your host, Misty Little, and this is Season 3, Episode 15. And I don't know about you guys, but I am starting to see signs of spring around here in Southeast Texas. Started kind of trimming things back last uh, weekend, and I found fern fronds trying to unfurl, and salvia poking out, and agastache, and the rhododendrons are trying to put on big fat pink buds, and oh my goodness, I am so excited. (laughs) It's been kind of a rough winter. I will say, for having a rough winter for here, we've had a great season of spinach, which usually kind of struggles with our heat in, in the winter, so we don't usually have good luck with that. And I've actually saw another Houston gardener had success with Brussels sprouts, which is something else we struggle with. And most people don't recommend even bothering with those. So if you grow those up north, consider yourself lucky. But of course, you know, vice versa, we can grow some other things you guys probably can't. So, uh, you know, take what we can. So yes, spring is on the way. With that, today's guest is Benjamin Vogt. He is the author of A New Garden Ethic. And if you listen to episode 11 from this season, I talked about his book in my Good Garden Reads summary of the book garden books I read for 2017. And as you know, if you listen to that episode, <laughs> I was kind of on a little odyssey of reevaluating my garden thoughts and my place in gardening this last year. And one of those was starting to read, you know, Bringing Nature Home with Dr. Tallamy, um, The Humane Gardener with Nancy Lawson, who was a guest last or this season, earlier this season as well, and Benjamin's book as too. So they all three really do tie together. If you've read the other two and you haven't read Benjamin's yet, I definitely recommend opening that book. And actually, honestly, I think I recommend opening this book anyway, (laughs) because the book is gardening, but it's also about culture. It's about mindset and mind shift. And honestly, it's a book you're going to want to pick up over and over again over the years because it's got something different to offer every time you read it. I read it the first time in the fall, not long after it came out. And then I read it again as I was kind of preparing to talk to Benjamin and definitely picked up things that I either, you know, maybe skimmed through the first time or Maybe it just didn't sit with me the, in the first read, and it sat with me this time, and I was definitely struck by how much of it could be applied to other social changes and social issues um, going on in our lives currently. So anyway, I think Benjamin explains the book pretty well, but I've also included in the show notes links to his writings online, um, other places besides his blog and website and a couple other podcasts and radio shows that he's been on so you can hear him talk about it with other people and kind of get a better idea of what this book is and hopefully you guys will pick it up and read it as well. So I do want to give a note on the audio. My end was crackly and I'm definitely learning that the trend for when I have audio issues is when I record at work on my lunch break. So I'm not sure if it's bad Wi-Fi or I have too much electronics or around the recording area or something's going on. So I really apologize for that. But Benjamin comes through loud and clear. So there's no problems on his end. So you hear him great. And you can hear me. I just get crackly and buzzy and a little annoying sometimes. So please bear with the audio. It's still a great interview. And Benjamin has a lot of good things to say. And with that, you can drop me an email at thegardenpathpodcast at gmail.com. 
You can make a comment on the website, thegardenpathpodcast.com, and you can find me on Instagram at thegardenpathpodcast. Okay, hope you guys enjoy the interview. All right, well, thanks for um, coming on the podcast. Um, If you want to just kind of introduce yourself, tell me everybody about where you're located, your zone, and um, we'll kind of go from there. Zone? You mean like USDA hardiness zone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's people relate to that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I am Benjamin Vogt. I am a dude who finds himself living in eastern Nebraska. Never dreamed he'd live here, but here he is. Um, I run, uh, I, I own Monarch Gardens LLC, a prairie garden design firm in Lincoln, Nebraska. Do a lot of writing for House, 200 articles, do a lot of speaking around the country. I guess I'm in USDA hardiness zone five, but I don't garden by hardiness zones and I don't advocate gardening by hardiness zones. I am in one of the tall grass prairie ecoregions. So. Okay, so maybe we can talk about that. Why don't you advocate gardening <laughs> by zones? <laughs> uh, gardening by zones. I mean, okay, you could be, you, okay, zone five stretches all the way across the country. So zone five North Carolina has absolutely nothing to do with zone, with zone five California. Now, you can certainly garden with plants from around the country and around the world if you want to, but that's not going to be helping wildlife as much. You need to be using native plants, and when you're using native plants, the best way to go is looking at ecoregion, ecoregions. And, you know, there's there's really big ecoregions, which is level one that, you know, like for the tall grass region, that's going all the way from Canada way down to Texas. Um, but then you can go all the way down to ecoregion level four and get even more specific and find your super-duper local wonderful ecoregion and what specific plants will work well for that. Um, yeah, I will, I will attest to that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that was long. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, yeah, I'm actually finding that out this winter that um, our zones aren't really that accurate. <laughs> We've had a lot of a rougher winter. So a lot of zone pushing goes on around here and because we're kind of subtropical and, a lot of people are really disappointed now. So, <laughs> well, and those and those zones are moving north and uphill about three feet. Uh, God, was that? I don't think it was a three feet every day. It couldn't be that quick. It could be that it was quick. Like maybe like a year or a month or I don't know. But I remember seeing something like that. Like yeah, said. they are moving. Yes. So, I guess a little bit more of your background. I know you don't have a background in gardening or horticulture. Uh, you're a writer and. I would say by your background and your degrees, but maybe talk a little bit about your gardening history, your connection to the land. I know you were in Oklahoma and then Minnesota, but expound upon that a little bit. Yeah, I, I come totally from outside horticulture, which I hope benefits me more than it hurts me, though. There are days it certainly hurts. I have a PhD in, in creative writing, did a dissertation. I did two dissertations. One of them was a memoir where I, I was writing about growing up gardening with my mother in Minnesota and and ex, and just how our relationship deepened and how it helped me explore her troubling past, which sort of helped me understand who I was as a person. So, you know, I was born in Oklahoma, lived there for 10 years, hated it, hated going back. It was just so dry and flat and windy. And then when I moved to Minnesota, it was just a totally different world and a different culture. There, the nature was right up in your face. There were woods and lakes everywhere, and birds flying all around, migrating and, and doing the 
crazy bird stuff. And so it was just, it was just very rich for me. And I think that opened me up to understanding how rich Oklahoma actually was. And I sort of come back to appreciating these two extremes that have sort of led to me being exactly in between geographically speaking in Nebraska. And you, you get to Nebraska by way because of college. Yeah. Yeah. Doing the PhD. I I did my undergrad in Indiana, master's in Ohio, PhD here in Nebraska. So yeah, I am surrounded by corn and cattle and not enough prairie. Um, Well, talking about prairie, well, you know, before we talk about your book, I think we need to kind of set the place and talk about the garden and the landscape and how you came to write the book based on how you came to garden at your uh, location. So if you can set the seat, set the setting for us (laughs) and, um, you know, kind of go back into how you began. Yeah. I, uh, you know, like I said, I grew up gardening with my mother and that was, it was more often or not just forcing me to go to nurseries and forcing me to go outside, which ended up being fantastic. When my wife and I got married in 2007, we bought a new home together. It was a totally blank landscape, bare soil, and uh, made her truck around 20 yards of mulch for a 1,500-foot square foot garden, which was which was the first area. You know, it's a 10,000-square-foot lot, so 1,500 feet isn't that much. It's now 5,000 square feet, but... That first year gardening, I spent, God, eight hours a day outside just going totally nuts, you know, burning my back until sheets of skin peeled off and 100 degrees outside. And I was totally crazy. And I would totally do it way differently now. I've learned so much more as, as a designer and just as a gardener. But now our 10,000 acre, our 10,000 acre, that would be <laughs> so cool. Oh, our 10,000 square foot lot is now. Oh, probably, we probably have four or 5,000 feet of gardens now. And I mean, the oldest garden, it's, I, I specifically put each plant in the place I wanted it and just sort of let it do its thing. The front garden, I did that to a lesser extent. And then the back garden, which is now basically a 2,000 foot meadow, I just, I just scalped the grass, raked up as much thatch as I could and tossed down seed everywhere. And I'm letting it figure its own thing out and let the plants decide where they want to go, where they want to be. But that's the thing, your gardens aren't the typical garden, so... Oh, no, they are. They are thick and they are lush. Um, I wouldn't say if people are are familiar with with Pete Adolf, I mean, they're not quite quite that formal, even though a lot of people consider that wild looking. But they're also not just a messy, crazy, you know, let let the weeds grow and, and do what they want. I'm constantly editing plants, bringing new plants in, taking out seedlings and plants and... You know. Well, and you're designing it with some kind of, I guess, flow, <laughs> because you know you're in a neighborhood with everybody else who has a standard, you know, garden, well, non-garden landscaping. <laughs> oh yeah, it's standard. Most of the houses in my neighborhood, it, it's still a fairly new development, and most of the houses just have lawn up to the up to the walls. If I'm lucky, some people will have two or three foot deep foundation beds with six shrubs spaced six feet apart. So yeah, what I did what I did with the front was I I definitely was cognizant of trying to use minimal a minimum number of plant species, put them in clumps and drifts, have nothing too tall, nothing that arched over the sidewalk because people do not like to be touched by plants, especially strange plants. And then I put a lawn pathway up the middle so it looked like, you know, it's sort of inviting. Humans can come access this space. It's okay. Right. And I guess has anybody taken you up on trying to emulate you? 
Oh, God, won't that be the day? <laughs> no, I mean, the whole reason the front garden started, and it's only 600 square feet, it's a small front yard, but the whole reason it started was because we got a complaint from county weed control in May of 2014. Somebody complained that our lawn was a little too long, and there were some dandelions that were turning the seeds. Oh, so, so over the summer, I worked on my wife, and in August, she finally acquiesced and said, okay, you can put a garden in, let's, let's do it. So much less mowing now. It's fantastic. I like mowing is not fun. <laughs> oh my God, it's terrible. I don't understand. I, I I have a neighbor across the street who mows three times a week. What the heck? <laughs> my neighbor's the same way. He'll mow and I'm like, uh, even in the deepest summer, I'm like, well, I still got about five days before I really need to mow. So we're oh, good. Yeah. yeah, in July, not that grass is not growing. <laughs> no, it doesn't need, it. need uh, to be mowed. But yes, I'm surrounded by similar people. So. Um, you mentioned spending like a thousand dollars on those initial plants and when you're putting in the garden, um, kind of talk about what you realize you shouldn't have done now and how do you, how have you gotten your plants since then? You might, you said you sow some stuff from seed, but what are your sources? Because a lot of native plants aren't really readily available. Oh, native plants are, are readily available by a, a cornucopia of small family growers who, and I, I found some hidden gems here in the upper Midwest that will actually mail order. That's one way to do it. Um, but I am also lucky because I have a, I have a plant distributor license to work with wholesale plant growers, and that's how I can get native plants for relatively uh, inexpensive costs for my clients. But now, going back to that first garden I did here at home, that 1,500 square foot garden where I was outside being insane in the heat. I mean, I was I was like the typical gardener. I spent, um, except for spending $1,000 and one trip to the nursery, not typical. <laughs> but I was buying those, you know, those $15 one gallon plants, um, which is just, it's ridiculous. You, you can, if you go to a, a major online nursery like prairie and moon nursery or prairie nursery for fifteen dollars you get like five plants or six plants mm -hmm. um so i'm you know and, and these those smaller plants will establish just as fast if not faster as those expensive fifteen dollar plants in those one gallon containers so now if i were to do it again i mean i'd certainly be using a lot smaller plants which which would also be dug in the ground a lot easier i mean when you're working with clay soil which i don't mind but you know, if you're doing a plant that's a three-inch pot versus a one-gallon pot, oh, my God, you know, the difference in, in work and sweat is, is massive. Right. Um, and I probably also incorporate some some sowing into the garden as well because I, I when I design gardens, I, I don't design to have wood mulch in them. I design to have plants as the living green mulch because that's how nature does it, and it works fantastically. So I would probably sow in some sort of maybe a side oats gram or a short grass or sedge or something. And, and then, and then I would use flowering plants and shrubs and just uh, potted ones and just plant them in there among the sowed area. Yeah. But you mentioned grasses and sedges and most people don't like those. They don't think of those as garden plants. So. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. But I get, you know, it is so changing. I mean, it was certainly changing in the horticulture industry. Sedges are so hot right now. I mean, it's crazy. Last year, I had a hard time even getting some sedges for my clients, especially later later in the year. And so many of them are so adaptable. Like my favorite is Plains Oval Sedge, Carex Brevior. I mean, sun, shade, dry, wet. You know, give it to me, it says. <laughs> um, yeah, I wish that was kind of the case. That I guess maybe more general 
public maybe doesn't really think that way. At least people I come across, maybe. It, it would be, it would be nice if more garden designers would educate their clients a little bit more more and not be. I think a lot of them are afraid that they're going to lose lose their job or something if they're advocating for native plants and advocating for a different way to landscape our gardens. You know, everybody drives around towns and they and they see these businesses and the business landscapes are three shrubs and five hundred square feet with you know eighty thousand cubic yards of mulch. And that's what people think looks good and what we should do at home. And that's totally wrong on so many levels from ecological standpoint, sustainability standpoint, and even from a beauty standpoint. So somehow we have to rethink pretty on our landscapes, you know, is what's pretty for wildlife because that's going to ultimately be what's pretty for us as well. Right. So as you've gardened and you're writing articles and writing your blog posts, um, what made you want to write the book and, um, maybe walk us through that process of developing that from your <laughs> brainstorming in your head to actually getting it published. Yeah, you know what made me write the book was I'll be totally, totally honest here, was just anger. And uh, I think anger can be an incredibly useful tool. Anger and frustration and sadness and depression and disappointment, uh, which also made the book really hard to write. But, you know, that must mean I'm doing something good if I'm having such strong emotions. Um, I didn't have the idea so much in my head as I think the book came out from uh, a lot of a lot of blog posts, a lot of people leaving comments. Um, I did guest blog posts at places like Garden Rant. I got I would get there's one article I did a I think it was titled something like the Native Plants Are a Moral Choice, and I had 140 yes. comments. Yeah, oh my God, the arguments and just people's you know I mean so. <laughs> It's, and then it, it went to Facebook, and I was having online conversations and sometimes just online arguments, unfortunately, just trying to flush out these ideas and understand other people's perspectives and how I could hope to win them over and change their mind as they were even changing my mind on some issues. So it, it was just – it was many years uh, of, of lots of heated discussion. Yeah, I remember that garden rant post and, and other things you've commented on. I, I had followed and people are really uh, passionate about native plants or non-native plants and what they love. And I don't know, did you, were you able to convert anybody? Oh, yeah, there was. Well, I'm sure I was. And I, I'm sure, you know, there are people I will never meet and never talk to who who have hopefully slid more toward towards the middle of the scale. But I, I remember there's one woman specifically not going to name her obviously, but um, yeah, totally, totally thought I was off my rocker. And then I think it was, it was last fall after my book came out. She's like, you know, I thank you. You've totally changed my mind. I see things totally differently now. And I can, so, you know, that's rewarding. I mean, hopefully people don't think I'm converting them to like <laughs> some, some, something awful, but um I try, you know, no. I mean, this, this, this fight is not about what's, what, what's good for us as humans and, and the human culture. It's what's good for the millions of other cultures that we share this planet with. Well, and it's, it's hard to change something, a perspective that you've grown up with, or you've been indoctrinated with your whole life. And to be told that something you love is actually maybe possibly harmful or not beneficial. It's, it's hard to kind of reconcile that at first. And I mean, oh. I definitely felt that in, in reading your book, it, it was difficult to read at times. And even I agree with you. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, chap- chapter three is all about the psychological issues that are going on with that. And, and yeah, how it is 
when 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 you have when you define yourself by your experiences and then somebody says you know your experiences there we got to think more critically about them because these experiences might not actually be as beneficial as we thought and that's it's like whenever i bring up butterfly bush with someone it's 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 just the the conversation quickly spirals to what do you mean i should never plant butterfly bush it, it has butterflies all over what are you talking about and i have to explain no this plant is becoming aggressive and invasive across the united states it's not a host plant for anything and the only insects coming to it are these are, are, are a few charismatic pollinators, the big butterflies and some bumblebees. Or it's really not being used by that much. Right. Um, so let's talk about that psychology a little bit. Um, what did you, I guess, see and develop when you're writing a book talking about changing our language and our culture? And, I mean, you kind of just stick it out there. You say that we need to change quickly. Um, because the plants and the wildlife and our ecosystems need us to change quickly. But I mean, I really, honestly, I don't see that happening, but mm-hmm. you know, if we were to start and to do that, where, where would you think we, where do we need to start? Well, I mean, you, you, you have to start at, at the places where you have the most intimate contact with the world outside of your, uh, of your walls. And that's, that starts with your home and what's outside there in the landscape. And, Hopefully it can start at work and church and school and those landscapes. I was, I was visiting, this is I mean, totally non sequitur, but I was, I was visiting a school last week and I'm designing a very small pollinator garden out front, but right across the street must be, you know, 20,000 square feet of lawn that is never, ever going to be used. It's just sitting there. I'm sure they mow it once a week and it's just travesty. Why, you know, why, why can't you see that in prairie? And then think about all, you know, all the classes, all the school kids can come out there in science and art and English and whatever and watch the wildlife and get to know them. And, you know, so we have to start at home. We have to start where we are every day. But that's not even enough. It's a drop in the bucket, but it will get us it will get us caring. It'll get us connected to wildness and wildlife. We are raised so we're raised to be afraid of nature, of, of, of dark woods, of spiders and wasps and bees. You know, don't touch these things. Don't go near these things. That That's the last thing we need to be teaching our children on ourselves. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's definitely the way to start. I've been, I mean, I have a three-year-old son, and even I'm not that fond of some spiders, but I definitely have tried to tame my approach and be like, oh, that's just a spider. It's okay. Leave it alone, and we can watch it, and, you know, <laughs> try to go from there. So he hasn't really developed that total fear. Every now and then he gets a little, you know, scared but you just kind of have to calm him down and just explain and he's fine after that and i feel like maybe we need to also the adults need to watch our language and how we're talking about nature as well but it's kind of hard if you don't know where you're coming from you don't know what you don't know basically oh yeah totally and you know if we i mean everywhere we go and we walk we walk on our lunch breaks downtown i mean there's just there's just not nature there so how can you have how can you have a conversation with other humans about it, let alone have a conversation with the flora and fauna um, that, 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 that's around you? I mean, we, we are programmed to have this genetic love for wildness and, and wildlife. It's biophilia. That's, that's, the, that's the term for it. But we're constantly pushing it away every day in our lives, and it is making us sick. It is making us crazy. It's making us fearful and distrustful. 
and not just inter- not just in interactions outside in nature, but I think with one another in, in, in religion and politics. It's all related to me in my mind. Yeah, no, I totally agree. That was one thing I thought about in your book is that it's not a gardening a book necessarily. It's about <laughs> it intertwines into so many different aspects of our lives. You could apply so many of the tenets of the book to like you said, our relationships and our politics and our culture uh, currently. So <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you said that because that's exactly what I wanted the book to be. And that's I always tell my I always tell my wife, you know, I wish somebody would talk about the fact that it's actually not a gardening book, even though it has garden in the title, and that's all I talk about. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, isn't. It's it's definitely a, it's a cultural book, I think, and it's going to take more people um, like you pointing these things out before I think we really have this mind shift and it's going to be a while. Oh, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be, well, it's going to be too late, but I guess late, better late than never. I don't know. I don't know. At least we're trying to address it. Yeah. <laughs> better than not. <laughs> so, um, something I think of gardeners is kind of living in their own world and it, this kind of probably goes back to, like you said, your interactions online with other people um, and not really understanding anything outside of their own garden. Um, do you think we should all kind of more adopt a more naturalist mentality of being curiosity seekers and trying to actually understand our ecosystem? Um, I guess I feel like we have these schools that are teaching us, you know, biology and science and we're teaching tests basically, but mm-hmm. nobody really comes out understanding their, their, their surroundings. And I guess how can we as gardeners become more curious? <laughs> I don't know if you have that answer, but. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it, 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 it starts with planting, I don't know, a smooth aster. And when it's blooming, just sitting out there for 15 minutes and watching what comes, what comes to visit. And just, you know, we all, we all plant flowers because we want that beauty. We want want that sensation of, oh, that's pretty. I'm glad to have that in my life. We also plant flowers because we want things like butterflies and birds. So, I mean, we all want this when we're gardening. This is is where it begins. And there's a natural progression that, that can develop. I don't know how it develops. I mean, even thinking about my own gardening life, you know, I, Maybe it started when I realized that those caterpillars on milkweed were monarchs and I shouldn't kill them. Maybe right. it's small, small realizations like that, that just, that just building your landscape as you start to, you know, I, I come from the generation where, well, and you probably do too, where I didn't have email growing up half my life and I didn't have Google. Now you can Google anything and in five seconds, you, oh, that's what that bug is. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let it do its thing. Um, so right. the world is different. It's a lot easier to look up something and, or, crowdsource what's this bug <laughs> <laughs> what's this yeah and, and your, your your point about teaching is interesting because we do teach the tests i i taught in college for 15 years and i guess i was lucky because i was teaching english and writing and i mean every day it was about i was teaching about critical thinking and and wondering and wandering and not taking anything at face value and and researching things and just being inquisitive and being able to listen to others, their, their perspective, their point of view, and, and to have, have a dialogue that got you somewhere. I don't know. Better is not the right word. I'm a writer and I'm using the word better. <laughs> um, I don't know. More, more, more constructive, more grounded, more connected. Cause right. 
we are all equal, all of us, every living organism on this planet. So you are very, very passionate about prairies because that's where you live. How do you see, um, I guess, a perceived value in your, I guess, everyday life? And I mean, obviously you mentioned there's pastures and farms and ag land all around you. Um, but it kind of goes back to, I guess, what we we're talking about is our perceived value of nature. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, oh, you want to keep going? No, no, that's fine. <laughs> I, I don't know where I was going with that. I guess I'm just trying to understand. So, you know. Yeah, okay. I will go. I <laughs> will go. That's fine. So, um, you know, I my, my family homesteaded Western Oklahoma in the 1870s. And I, I have done a lot of research. I tried to write a book about this. Um, but they basically, you know, they, they they the government opened up farms to homestead in Cheyenne and Arapaho reservation land. So I am totally cognizant that my family is part of eroding human cultures, uh, human cultures and plant and animal cultures because they literally plowed up the prairie. Um, you know, we can see prairie. We can see the benefits of prairie in many ways. You know, it can be aesthetic. It can be. It can be, oh, you know, I, I like to go pheasant hunting, and I know pheasants need need prairie habitat. I mean, it, it can be a numbers game, too. There's so much research showing, uh, you know, a, a well-established prairie can absorb nine inches uh, of rainfall before runoff even occurs. We can put prairie strips in farm fields and prevent soil erosion and chemical runoff going into streams and, and ponds and lakes. And we can even increase yields because we are having beneficial bugs and pollinators living in these prairie strips and these prairie edge habitats that, that are helping maintain a functioning ecosystem instead of spraying everything everywhere. You know, we need, we need hedgerows. We need those prairie strips. And um, we can actually, we actually, there are, as researchers shows, we can improve, improve corn and soybean yields when we're having wild areas around the farm fields. You know, and it's too bad that the farmers are also taking down, um, uh, you know, all the trees around their farm fields because those were put up to prevent dust bowl. And we're going to have another dust bowl. And I could talk about this stuff all day long. <laughs> well, I, there's a couple things in that. First, I would say, um, how often are people trying to re-prairie these little strips around their, their farms? Is this common or is it? Oh, no, no, no. Okay. I think it's just somebody who just happened. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, just, I don't see it. Okay. So no one is really actually trying to save anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a couple of years ago when corn was over $8 a bushel, I mean, they were trying to farm basically right up to the edge of the road. So, oh man. And I think they're still trying to do that, but I think it's down to three or $4 a bushel. So, right. Okay. Now let's go back to that dust bowl. What do you mean? How do you think we're going to have another dust bowl? Well, we're taking down all the, all these windbreaks because farmers are trying to expand their fields to get as much money out of every last last acre, last half acre, right? That that's totally, you know, I totally understand that. Um, but they're just going to be, you know, we, I'm, I'm out here on the Great Plains. We have wind. We're going to have erosion. And then when you don't even have trees and prairie strips and hedgerows along the edge of the field to prevent some of that erosion, both from the wind and and, and runoff taking topsoil. Um, you're just setting yourself up for another dust bowl. And there are experts, people who know far more than I do about this, who are saying the same thing, which is pretty much, I'm just pretty much copying what they say because they're smarter okay. than me. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we put all those trees in as a, as a post dust bowl program so that 
we would prevent wind again from coming in and just blowing all the soil off the field. So, and, and, and now, you know, we're in climate change. It's getting warmer. The Great Plains are forecast to be a lot drier. So it'll happen. It'll be fun. Can't wait. <laughs> yeah, hopefully there's not an economic, uh, well, I guess with farming and the, if there is a great festival, then there's no farms out there. So there would be an economic collapse too, probably. So. Uh, yeah, you know, I am not very much fun at parties. So <laughs> I just talk about this stuff. Oh, goodness. Um, well, let's, let's not be so dire and go back to our native landscapes a little bit. <laughs> um, you talk about the difference between plant culture and human culture. Can you differentiate that for listeners? Well, there is no difference. Okay. Oh, no, that's crazy. What? <laughs> I believe you just said that. Human, well, maybe there is. I mean, human culture basically privileges privileges human above everything else on the planet, right? So so we look through everything via our human perspective. You know, that's what I call human supremacism. Mm-hmm. Um, now there are other cultures living on this planet and they and they are successful cultures that have been that have been around for tens of thousands, millions millions of years. And we have just decided that these cultures aren't as valuable to us or have nothing to teach us. Which is crazy because you read about science making breakthroughs all the time about um, what was the thing about butterfly wings or something like that the, the, they they help, they will help us design better solar panels or something it was it was incredible so so yeah we have all these other cultures around us but we just we've lost our ability to communicate with them and 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 to learn from them. Um. So what could we learn from them? What do you think? I mean, besides. <laughs> I'm guessing, like, what have you seen in your own garden that you've learned from these other, these plant cultures, animal cultures, wildlife cultures? Well, I mean, you can you, you you can get really you can get really nerdy about this, and you you can just start to follow one one bee, one bee species, one bee species in your garden, and and notice what their annual flight patterns are when when they come around, um, what what they're using and how they're using it in the garden. Um, and, and and in that way you're you're learning their culture. I mean, you you start to you start to learn what the males are doing, uh, what the females are doing, where they're going, what 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 specific you know plants they're using. Are they using the ground? Are they are they nesting up high? Are they nesting down low? Um, and just and I think just beyond realizing that oh there is this other culture. They have these they have this language. They have these mannerisms. They have these desires and these needs just as I do. But just just by watching the other culture, you are learning um, to have interactions among other human cultures, to have patience and understanding. May, may, maybe that sounds a little bit like, "Oh, let me get out my crystal and pray," but you know, I hope not. No, I think you're developing empathy a little bit by doing that and taking, setting back, and letting those lives live their lives instead of automatically trying to, you know, take down the wasp nest or. Yeah. And, you know, empathy, empathy is the first step. You know, empathy is, is realizing that this other, this other creature, this, it can be whatever, a bee or a plant, this, this other entity has worth and value, you know, just as much as I do, just as much as somebody else does. That's a human. 
but so it starts with empathy, but then, but then it comes in compassion and you're like, you know what, I'm going to plant this specific plant because I know this specific insect needs it. And this specific insect is in trouble. So you're acting on that emotional connection you had. You're acting on the research that you've done. And that action is just something we desperately need. How, I guess, can we go from loving our monarchs and loving our big, um, like you said, the more charismatic species to coming around to, to appreciating and even creating habitat for maybe some of the more, I guess, human undesirable species? Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, and do you do that in your own garden, um, like leaving wasp nests or oh, yeah. just that kind of thing? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I've had last couple of years, I've had a significant increase in yellow jackets and yellow jackets are certainly our most aggressive wasp species. Most most wasps, you know, the ones that are nesting under the eaves uh, up there and building, you know, they're, they're the paper wasps and stuff. Mo- most of those are have terrible eyesight and just aren't very aggressive anyway. But yellow jackets are different. And I was planting an area two years ago out front and they were nesting in the ground. And I was just, I was getting closer and closer to that nest as I planted things in the ground. And I was just being slow. I was being careful. I was being respectful. Maybe in some ways I was being reverent, but I was trying not to disturb the ground too much. And if it took me three minutes to plant one plant, then that's how long it took me. And and I realized that if I respected them, they were going to respect me. And... You know, and isn't that a lesson we, we all want to learn, all want to teach our kids? Absolutely. I think, uh, unfortunately, too many people would be like, where's my raid? <laughs> where's my can of raid to spray these wasps? Yeah. Because they're bothering me. So Yeah, Which- but, you know, that, that respect for things like yellow jacket starts with a respect for monarchs and, and, and these larger things that we think are beautiful and that our grandmothers get magnets of and put on their fridges. So Right. <laughs> um. I think, do you want to talk about invasive plants a little bit? Um, You mentioned in your book, talking about other people not necessarily thinking that we need to be planting strictly native plants because we already have these invasives, climate change is happening. It's it's already messed up anyway, so why bother? Um, And the fact that some people kind of try to cultivate these invasive plants. Um, I guess what's wrong with this mentality and... How can we, I guess, I don't know, change their, change viewpoints? Well, you know, <laughs> I don't and, know if you can. And, well, I don't know if we can either, but you might as well try. If the, if the ship is sinking, you might as well scream. Um, now, I, 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 I don't think it's invasive plants necessarily. I think it's exotic plants and maybe exotic plants that could become invasive. We can't, we can't predict when a plant is going to escape a garden, um, but we all like to think we can. Um, it's certainly, yeah, I've, I've had passionate discussions with folks who say, you know, you can't have a 100% native plant garden. It's not, not going to look good. It's not going to function well. People aren't going to think it's pretty, which is just a bunch of BS. You know, we, they will argue, we, we need to bring in these cultivated exotic plants um, because it, it's limiting to have native plants. And I think, God, I have 5,000 species <laughs> native to the tall grass prairie. How is that limiting? So, I mean, that's just another example of human supremacism and, 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 and you know, putting our wish, our desire over the desire of countless other cultures and species, which, you know, obviously has huge ethical implications and, and is the core of my book and, and why I wrote it. Did I answer that? <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. I think it's difficult. Um, 
you talk about diversity and I, I don't, I feel like if people say there's no diversity, I agree with you. I don't think that there's no diversity in native plants. I just feel like there's no access to the general public typically. Like you have more access to yeah. license and that sort of thing. But for me going to even my local nurseries that I know specialize have a better section of native plants, I'm not able to find that. So of course someone's going to plant some of that. They're not going to necessarily have a hundred percent. Um, I guess yeah, so the whole point of going to nursery is just to fall in love with something and bring it home. I mean, it's, it's like going shoe shopping or <laughs> car shopping. Um, and, 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 you know, it's an industry, it's, it's consumerism. Nurseries know that I, I wish nurseries in general did a better job of educating consumers. I wish, I wish nurseries wouldn't push all these new hybrids of, of, of native plants who, you know, we don't know their interactions with wildlife and pollinators, if they're actually are as beneficial as straight species or not, but those are pushed every year. So you go to the nursery and be like, Oh, there's a new coneflower this year. I've got to have that one. It's different. Well, you know, if it doesn't have any pollen, it's not going to help bees and it's certainly not going to produce any seed, which isn't going to help birds. So we, we just, we just have this troubling horticultural industry, which I mean, it is troubling to me where plants are, are consumer, are things to consume and they're just valued on their aesthetic capabilities only. Right. They're bred to be bigger, bushier or the bigger flower that like you said, may or may not have the pollen that's needed for the wildlife. So yeah. Or, or, or changing leaf colors, all, all those plants with, with purple leaves, um, those are toxic to caterpillars. So nothing's going to be able to lay eggs on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually get a little miffed when I see a, a nursery label themselves as native plants. They're like, some just that's native plants. And you go there and yeah, they have a little section, but <laughs> it's not a native plant nursery. Well, and, 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 you know, and I, I don't know how true this is or not, but the most common argument is, you know, we've got to sell what the public wants. I mean, if that's the case, why aren't you looking at the latest research? You know, there's, there's all, all these, what's that top 10 list? Who's the organization that puts that out? I think I talked about it in my book, but there's a top 10 list of what consumers want. Like number one is native plants. Number two is like sustainability, low maintenance. Number three is drought tolerant. So what are you doing? Right. <laughs> the desire is there and nobody's actually filling that niche. Yeah, it's mind-boggling, actually. So j- just keep doing what, what you're doing because it's worked for you so far, you know. And I guess we're right. all like that. Yeah, right. We get comfy in our in our mindsets and situations, so. Ruts are fantastic. I have one on my couch. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a lot of my listeners are edible gardeners. Do you, how would they, could, do you think they could apply your book and thought process to edible gardening? I feel like it's a little bit of a different situation because we're trying to protect what we want to grow, what we need to eat. And obviously most of us aren't trying to grow our whole um, pantry for the year, though there are, you know, people out there who do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't have that need anymore. But at the same time, you know, I feel like this can be applied out there. And I'm always trying to, you know, sometimes I don't comment, but I definitely try to sneak things in when I see like, hey, maybe you shouldn't pluck that hornworm off or maybe you need to just have some extra tomatoes and you know let it live over there (laughs) well here's here's my answer do you want um higher produce yield do you want higher quality fruit and vegetables then you're going to want native plants that are bringing in pollinators and beneficial predator bugs 
I mean, it's as simple as that. If you have a vegetable garden, you need to have an area nearby that's full, thick, and lush of diverse structure of plants and a bunch of different things flowering at once. I mean, that's I mean the same thing that applies to uh, industrial agriculture applies to your vegetable garden out back. You want you want strips of prairie. You want hedgerows. You you want trees. So you can attract the birds that eat the bugs. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and the wasps that eat the bugs and the spiders that eat the bugs and, and, and the flies. There are, you know, there are flies that, you know, like tactic flies and monarchs. Right. So, yeah, I mean, to me, it's a really easy answer. But, you know, I stopped trying to grow vegetables years ago. Yeah, I heard you mention that. I think on another podcast. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would like to get back into it someday. But I am devoting the backyard to prairie habitat right now. So. It's it's not for me. It's for everything else. Um, I guess maybe we can just talk about like your forward progress. Where do you see your book going from here? Your this ethic. Um, have you seen anybody really trying to take what you're saying and implement it in their own organizations or spreading the word on blogs and in horticulture? Is there any, even even any big names trying to like kind of take hold of this idea too? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I'm certainly coming at this from a different angle. It's a much more philosophical, psychological angle. It's not a how-to. I mean, obviously, just there's designers out there like Pete Outoff and Roy Dublick and, and so many others who, who are designing sustainable gardens uh, for wildlife or not, but they're, they're using a large proportion of native plants, and, and, they're, and they're doing gardens that are, you know, not having plants six feet apart and not using wood mulch. And then, you know, we have that book by Thomas Rainer and Claudia West, Planting in a Post-Wild World, which is fantastic. We have all kinds of new books coming out about sowing sustainable gardens and, and, and how, how to let your plants develop on their own, move around, and, and not to think of plants as sculptures that are always going to be in the same place and should be in the same place. Um, so there is progress. I, I had somebody tell me, uh, last fall that my book is basically like a hand grenade thrown into the room. And <laughs> I, I don't know if that was a compliment or I think it's half compliment, half, uh, you know, it's like, I've had people tell me we need to read this book, but people aren't going to like it when they read it because it's asking us to think in radically different ways and to totally and totally re- reconsider how we view ourselves and view our culture and view each other in the light of mass extinction and climate change. It's not easy. No, and I think it goes hand in hand with so many other things in our culture. We've been asking people to reevaluate in this last year. So, mm-hmm. oh God, yeah, and that stuff is so related. It's all it's all from the same bowl, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely noticed that. I read it, you know, the one time that I reread it again to kind of prep for this and realizing things I missed, and it also sat with me different the second time. And um, it's, I think it's a book that people should revisit you know, at least on a yearly basis as they're maybe thinking about their gardens in the wintertime um, and just uh, reevaluating their own positions on a touching base with themselves, I guess. Yeah, it, it is a, it is, it is a challenging book and it's supposed to be challenging. I want, I want people to feel challenged, you know, just like when people read Rachel Carson's book or probably read Aldo Leopold's The Sand County Almanac. These, these are not easy books. They're asking tough questions of us, but God, we need these tough questions asked, absorbed, and and debated. I guess in closing, do you want to talk about your hope for finding acreage to expand your garden? Um, what you want to do in the future? 
with uh, this? I, I want 10,000 acres. I, <laughs> I said I had 10,000 square feet. I want 10,000 acres. Um, well, it's certainly our dream to have 40 or 80 acres, um, convert it to prairie, give something back in, a, in an ocean of corn and soybeans to host all kinds of different events, uh, maybe artist residency on site there, have have an acre or two display garden that shows, hey, you can have a beautiful 100% native plant garden. It doesn't, and, and it works, you know? Right. Um, I, I don't know if this dream's ever come, gonna come to fruition or not. Um, I have to win the lottery, I guess. I don't know, or live out of my car. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know in the Northeast, there's a lot of um, land cooperatives for, for like small farms. Mm. I don't know if there's any kind of cooperatives that you could pair with to, I don't I mean, know, to do something like this out there. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the trick is it's, it's, it's not going to be farming. It's just going to be, you know, right. here, here's land that was a cornfield and now it's prairie. You know, you're not going right. to do anything with it. You're not going to derive any income from it probably. Mm. So it's, well. it's tricky. Well, maybe we'll figure it out. We just need to find a benevolent person. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not 80 acres, but I don't know. You could find five somewhere, hopefully. Oh, no, that's too low. Lowest is 20. That's our oh, bottom. Okay. <laughs> 20 acres. <laughs> well, you know, and, and, well, and then there's also, yeah, I mean, we want to do good with the land, but we also want to not live so close to somebody. We hear their dogs barking or lawnmower running, you know. So there's right. there's the personal and then there's the not, you know, whatever. Right, right, right. Um, so do you have any upcoming speaking engagements you want to highlight? And then where can people find you um, on your website and social media and all of that? Yep. Monarch Gardens LLC. The website is monarchgard.com. So it's monarchgard.com. I've got, I got five online classes right now, which are fantastic. I teach you about native plants and sustainable landscape design, 200 free articles. Where am I speaking next? Well, Next week, I don't know when you're airing this, but putting this up, but next week is the North Coast Flower and Garden Show. I'll be there. Um, then I'm going out to LA in April. And then after that, it sort of quiets down a little bit, which is good because I'll be busy designing gardens. So I'm doing a series of talks in Iowa, um, February, March, and April as well, just across the border from Omaha. If there's anybody local listening to this, come on over. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you again for coming out and talking about the book, and thank you for writing it, too. I think uh, it's a very challenging read we all, all needed. So, Yes, thank you. Everybody, go get a new garden ethic and change your world. <laughs> all right. Thank you, and have a great day. You too.